0: Pleasure to be here. And this is the first of two. So, if you're only here today, you've really only sort of heard the foundations and not seen the house. Which is okay, it's better to have the foundations than nothing, but particularly if you don't often think about the area of sex, which is probably none of us. Um, I don't want you to go away from this thinking that you've heard everything that the Bible has to say about sex you do need to come back for the next week and we may see if, if there's a really burning question you have or that you know that your friend has, you might like to fill in one of these little cards and just jot the question on the back and I'll see if I can't make sure that we cover it next week ok I have a riddle for you uh, it's not that hard We look at the, the topic, the riddle is this uh, we think about it often we lie about it sometimes, we joke about it sometimes or often, but we talk about it seriously hardly ever. And you guessed it, for a million bucks, slave for a day, it's sex. We do think about it quite often, those statistics that say young guys think about sex every number of seconds, I have no idea how truthful that is or how good the research is, but it is a thing of concern, particularly in our culture of course which is sexually obsessed I think our culture thinks it's sexually liberated. I think it's probably fair to say it's a little obsessed with it. Sex is an embarrassing area. It's one of the reasons we joke about it. One of the reasons why a, a shabby comedian can get laughs is anything that's embarrassing, you talk about it for a few minutes and then crack a joke, it just releases the tension. I've seen some comedians who I heard in some of their first performances and saw them years down the road, and they'd run out of material at which point you just crack jokes about sex because that's mildly amusing. Even some professionals find sex embarrassing to talk about at a personal level. I read about this doctor who um, was asked to speak at the local Rotary meeting and it was mostly an audience of men then and um, he was working on his talk and his wife saw him working on a talk and she said, oh, what are you doing? He got a little embarrassed. He said, I'm working on a talk for Rotary. She said, what's it on? He said, it's on sailing. <laughs> um so she said, oh, okay. Anyway, I gave this talk, and uh, the mother, the wife was shopping soon after that, and one of the men who'd been at the road with me said, look, I just want to tell you, your husband was brilliant the other day. Just brilliant. I just found it so enlightening what he had to say about uh, the topic he was talking about. And she said, I think he talked about silence. He said, he doesn't know anything about it, really. He's only done it twice. <laughs> The first time he did it, he lost his hat, and the second time he went literally overboard. (laughs) So that um, he had sort of hidden his interest, his topic. Now, there used to be debates about whether or not you should have sex education at schools, uh, whether or not you should have sex education anywhere within the family. I think the difficulty for us is is to realise that we have been profoundly educated. By the time you're whatever age you are, you have been massively educated by our culture. You know, you're, you have Christian parents, they may have talked to you for one minute, you may have heard a, a talk somewhere on it, but you have been educated sexually about sex, or what's appropriate, what isn't, what's successful, what isn't, what's healthy, what's damaging. You've been educated over many, many hours through our literature courses, through our media, that uh, in particular. But the, the best sort of education you get, the most profound and most effective, is the education you get when you don't know you're getting it. When you sit in a lecture room like this, particularly if you're not Christian and you know that I probably am Christian, you will be sitting mentally with your arms folded playing, yeah, come on, convince me. And that's quite appropriate. The difficulty is that very often when you're being educated in our culture, you're sitting like this because you're being entertained. Uh, It's very interesting if you actually look at what comes to us through our movies and through our televisions. What is it teaching us about sex? It is teaching you all sorts of specific moral lessons. I remember when Home and Away first started. I watched it for the first six months and then could bear it no longer. But I watched it because I thought this was important. And I remember there was a great moment where his dad was telling his son something about sex. And he said, I thought this was clearly a moral moment. We were getting a very explicit moment of moral teaching. The kid was about 15, 16, and the father thought he might have been having sex with his girlfriend. He said, you should only have sex when, and he paused because he was embarrassed, when it's meaningful. If you're in love with someone, if you've fallen in love with someone, it's meaningful. In the end, that is a fairly meaningless statement from the dad. Because if you've fallen in love with someone and you've known them for a week, it's very meaningful. But that's the sort of moral teaching that you'll get. So we thought today we'd actually look at what does the Bible teach about sex. I'm sure in many of the courses you've done, you've heard things alleged to be the Bible's view or the Christian view. Let's actually look at what the Bible says in sex. It's only an overview. It'll be fast. I hope it'll be of some use. I've got seven questions, I think. The first is, whose idea is sex? Who thought of it? What is, what's certainly true in, um, in the Bible, which Jesus Christ at least believes to be God's Word, he really does think that if you want to know what God the Father thinks, he keeps taking you back to the Scriptures. It's not something that Adam and Eve discovered in that story. It's not something that humans, whether they got there by evolution or by divine design, uh, suddenly discovered and it was pleasurable and exciting and God was up in heaven going oh my goodness I just wanted it for reproduction and there's all this other stuff going on with it it's not something that humankind invented or discovered to the surprise of God it's certainly not something the devil invented you watch a number of the ads which will sometimes go back to the Adam and the Eve the tree temptation thing the temptation is always sexual or almost always sexual in nature but Eve is kind of looking a bit cute and leading this goose on one thing we do know about the temptation uh, in the garden of Eden it had absolutely nothing to do with sex in fact as we'll see in a moment if Adam and Eve did not have sex in the garden they were sinning but we'll come to that whose idea is sex it is not mankind. it's not Hugh Hefner's it's not the devil's it's of course God's idea so look at Genesis chapter 1 or if you'd like to read it to you nice and clearly we get to the part of the account in Genesis 1 where God is about to make humankind and he introduces three things about humans if you were going to introduce humankind to somebody who'd never seen a human what things would you want to say about him or her? what are the defining things about being human? and there's uh, three things here Genesis 1 verse 26 then God said let us make humankind in our image Is the first one according to our likeness let them have dominion over the fish of the sea over the birds of the air. the second one that they will be the rulers they will be the kings of the earth it's just a question of how they do the kingship let them have dominion over the fish of the sea birds of the air over the cattle over all the wild animals of the earth and every creeping thing that creeps upon the earth so God created humankind in his image in the image of God he created them and then we get the third thing male and female he created them of the three things we're told about God one of the things that God stresses is that you are created male and female to be human when God makes mankind he makes us sexual critters that is his idea he didn't have to there are other ways for creatures to reproduce other than sexual there's asexual starfish and that don't reproduce using sex some fishes don't use sex some lizards don't use sex coral doesn't use sex there are all sorts of ways that God has got for creatures to reproduce God has chosen to make us sexual you are male and female you could write a very good novel about a perfect nun called the sex life of a nun because it, she, your sex life is not just the actual act of genital intercourse you are a sexual creature have been since you were born there's only two cells in your body that you can't tell what sex you are one's the, the white blood cells and the other I think is your hair Every other cell, we can tell what sex you are. In every cell in your body, except these two sorts of cells, you are sexual. Being male and female is not just genital differences. That's what they were trying to tell us in the late 70s, early 80s. It was so sickening. We had to keep pretending that men and women were exactly the same, just with different machinery added. Whereas what the Bible says is that are, we are deeply male or deeply female. Every relationship you have is shaped by your sexuality. It's a much deeper thing than just the act of sexual intercourse. So whose idea is sex? The Bible's crystal clear from the very beginning. It's God's idea. He could have made you otherwise, and you wouldn't have complained. He could have made you asexual. We could have all been blokes. We could have all been women. We could have all been hermaphrodites. We could have all been all sorts of things. We wouldn't have complained. We wouldn't have said, gee, it's boring, all being women or all being men. Uh, But there are ways in which, what if a parthenogenesis, well, there are various creatures that, you know, actually have virgin births at times uh, uh, in the animal kingdom. So, I'm saying it's God's idea. It's important to say that because very often people approach sex as if it's kind of not really something that comes from the heart and mind of God. Well, secondly, is sex really good? Well, you'll notice one of the themes that goes to Genesis 1 is God does something and says it is good. He does something he says it is good. When he makes human crime and it's finally finished and he's commanded them in verse 28 look at verse 28 if you've got your bibles there God blessed them and said to them be fruitful and multiply now they may not have ever seen those marvellous videos you can see the little egg gets waved down the fallopian tubes and the little sperm comes swimming up you know that magnificent video which we can see um, but, but let me tell you back in Moses day they knew the way that you had kitties was by having sex so when God says be fruitful uh, what do you think he is suggesting that they do the first command given to mankind from God is have sex if Adam and Eve do not have sex in the garden that is high handed treason and rebellion so let that known is bull that God has got some problem with sex it is his invention and he tells them to get on with it in case they weren't quite sure what to do and then at the end of it in verse 31 when it's all been made the man and the woman have had the command from God to go and reproduce then God says it's very good it is very good do you want to have a bit of congregational participation we could do something where I could say something and you repeat it back after me you do that in lectures I don't, I said, I don't know how to educate you know? <laughs> you know I could say God made sex and you could all say God made sex and sex is good and you could all say sex is good and then on the basis of verse 31 sex is very good would be a good thing to do would you remember that? God made sex sex is good it is very good he won't do it because we're all adults here <laughs> but it just, it just might mean you remember that part because it's very important that we see that and you see in Genesis 2 where the story of the creation of the man and the woman is, is uh, told us again from a different point of view that when the woman is brought to the man you know, he's in a perfect environment with a perfect relationship with God and yet he is not happy he's not a world critter because he's alone so in, at the end of uh, verse 22 of chapter 2 God makes the woman and he brings the woman to the man and then the man says this at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh this one shall be called woman for out of man this taken therefore a man leaves his father and his mother and clings to his wife and they become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked, and they were not ashamed. When, when in that story that, that God brings the woman to the man, it's the first bit of, as I understand it, genuine Hebrew poetry. And it's just this love poem. He is so thrilled to meet the woman that God has made for him. He is relieved. There is joy. There is excitement. There is unity. He shall cling to his wife, and they will become one flesh. Interestingly, some of you will notice, in verse 24 it says the man will leave his mother and father and cleave to his wife. That's not the way you would expect him to say it in a patriarchal society which that's basically just about every culture uh, has been, certainly was back then. Right? You would expect it to say the woman would leave her mother and father, cling to her husband but the Bible says no, 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 the bloke has to leave and he clings to his wife. He attaches himself to her because what used to happen in those days was that the wife would become part of not just her husband's stuff and property but her husband's dad that's what would happen when you got married what the Bible No, 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 we're not going to have that nonsense the bloke has to leave and they become one flesh that's the thing of sexual unity that the two become one their bodies become one in the act of sexual union and they were naked and unashamed is sex good? of course it's good it's very good God designed it the way it's supposed to be now I don't know how you work with the Garden of Eden but however you picture the Garden of Eden if you can't imagine Adam and Eve lost in sexual ecstasy in the midst of orgasm in the Garden of Eden before they sin you have a faulty view of creation and sex if Adam and Eve and I presume they had time to have sex in the Garden before they sin if Adam and Eve were having sex on the grass presumably no bindi eyes and stuff like that you know, and you think as God as God looked on God would be going yes that's exactly what I, want. I want them to enjoy it. it's a gift I gave them. it's to be enjoyed together to be fruitful and to enjoy it <laughs> is sex really good yes it's very very good it's a great gift from God now why is sex such a big deal or isn't it is sex a big deal do people make too much of it <coughs> I want to suggest to you those of you who have read one of John Dixon's books May think I got this from him, but I didn't. Uh, there are two views of sex at, uh, at large in our community. I want to suggest there's the Ferrari view and the Cortina view. I used to own a Cortina. He speaks of the Ford and the Datsun. I don't know the Porsche and the Datsun because he's got no class. Uh, I used to own a Cortina. Got it for 300 bucks. I would loan that car to anybody who was vaguely a friend. Had third-party property insurance, so if I'd smashed into a Mercedes-Benz. We weren't paying it off forever and our children's children's and our children's 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 children playing off everything, And that was okay. So I learned it to France. It was rubbish, really. It did the job, but it wasn't worth much. I learned it to people younger than me, people older than me. If I had a Ferrari, now I'm not a car file, but they're beautiful looking bits of machinery and they sound good. If I had this magnificent Italian sports car, I would be more careful about learning it out, particularly young people. A bit of ageism coming in there. Uh, you know, because they go so fast, so quickly, and you can damage them. There's such a finely tuned bit of machinery that you'll be more careful. You might actually be more reluctant to learn it out. Why is that? It's not because you don't like it. It's, it's because you love it, because you appreciate it, because you value it. You're more careful with it. Now, I want to suggest to you, in our culture at the moment, although there are different sort of ways of viewing sex. The culture in which we've been brought up and thoroughly well educated in has got basically a Cortina view of sex. It calls it liberation, but it really has a very cheap view of sex. So one of my friends was training uh, to be a doctor at New South Wales University. It would never be said here, of course, at New South Wales University when his professor came to the part of teaching about sexuality, he had a glass of water on the desk, and he said, if you're thirsty, have a drink. If you're hungry, have some food. If your bowels are full, go to the toilet. If you're randy, have a screw." that was his understanding of sex it was just one more physical desire now it is a physical desire but he said that is all there is to it anything more than that is just a nonsense it is just a physical desire to be enjoyed safely whenever and however you wish it's just like drinking a glass of water and uh, that that was the view now then you come slightly further up in the slightly more exalted view and people talk about recreational sex that's like playing squash we're going for swim and then you get to have people like Philip Adams who will describe it as the, trans, the transcendental experience of the atheist materials the nearest thing they get to a mystical experience when there's good sex between couples who really love each other and we have all sorts of marvellous songs about being nothing but animals and uh, right up to the, the high point a bit of sexual healing Now there's, there's kind of truth in both ends there I'm afraid there is a way in which the Bible speaks about sex as a, as a way that a couple comforts each other but there is healing and all sorts of good feelings, not just the actual moment of sexual orgasm, but all sorts of good feelings between a couple are released when you have sex together in fact it's one of the reasons why you're kind of mad to have sex before you get married I was chatting with a friend who as he was driving away from his marriage service with his wife he started to cry and uh, his wife said what's wrong what's wrong she said we've just made a dreadful mistake so I think it's a fairly depressing thing to say I'm not sure I would have said that tomorrow even if I felt it and looking back on it he said the thing that the thing that tricked us now later on he became a Christian and he saved stayed with his wife remember because that's what that's what you do when you make a promise you keep it but he said the thing that tricked them was they had sex early in the relationship so they never really got to know each other because all the all the Good. All the, one of the purposes of sex uh, in marriage is to bind a couple together, to release all sorts of good feelings and all sorts of chemicals into the system that help you feel good together. You have that before you get married. There's a very good chance you'll never get to know the person. You'll never actually deal with the person as a person. So what the Bible says about sex is don't, you know, don't mishear the Bible. It actually thinks that sex is a wonderful gift from God. It's a powerful gift. Can do you an awful lot of damage, and you can hurt other people innocently. In our culture, I think we're doing a lot of damage to each other innocently, because our culture tells us what to do, and we're good little people, so we do it. So it's interesting to ask, why do people want to have sex? You can try asking people, why, why do you, why do you want to? ask? Part of it is just physical desire; that's part of the way God has wired us up. But there's much more going on than just that. I have spent some time at a particular. So there were two schools side by side a girls' school and a boys' school so we ran a bit of a survey asking the guys and asking the girls why they wanted to have sex now with the blokes had to wait for them to calm down oh my god <laughs> <laughs> we well, well, to prove that they were all really, oh, <laughs> what else could you want you know any time of we <laughs> <laughs> you know you're all men well done thank you man That's very impressive <laughs> and it took, they, they had actually more trouble than the girls didn't explain it but the Blake spoke about it in terms of what it, what it made them feel about themselves. I think, in the end, to summarise the many, many views they gave, it, it kind of made them feel as if they had arrived. It was like a rite of initiation. That by having sex, it proved something about you being a genuine man, moving from boyhood to manhood, and it, it was something about it. it made you feel somehow of a significant. Uh, the girls on the whole now these are just generalisations the girls on the whole spoke about love feeling loved now passion and pleasure is in there as well although the research is fairly clear that an awful lot of Australian women don't find sex with their boyfriends very satisfying uh, which is not surprising really. but we can come back to that perhaps next week but um, the, the, some of the girls said things like look I know that he doesn't really love me I know that my boyfriend doesn't really, he's not really deeply on my side. But at least in the lead up to sexual intercourse and that, it feels like it. And some bit of being cherished and being cared for and having his undivided attention is better than none. Which is why a number of studies have shown, one in Sweden and one in Australia, have shown very clearly that a girl who does not feel loved, particularly by her father, a girl who does not feel loved, now she may be loved, but if she doesn't feel that love, by her father is much more likely to become sexually active early because what a lot of women are looking for according to these studies they are looking for the feeling of being loved which is why when you see, as Lewis drew my attention to this 20 something years ago when you see a girl who dresses extraordinarily sexually very provocatively, she and, and I think a lot of girls do it without realizing what they're doing, they're just sort of copying what the fashion is but when you see a woman who, who seems to know what she's doing and she's dressing in a way that really draws attention to her as a sexual critter. Right? Some people look at her and you know, what an unpleasant woman. No, no, what that woman has learnt is the only time I get love down here is in the sexual context. And we are desperate creatures for love. You need to be loved. Even blokes right, need to be loved. And a lot of women have discovered that only in the context of sexuality are they liable to get this desperate need met. Sex is a big deal because it communicates something. When you have sex with something, it's saying something to them. Now, you can do it as an animal. You can do it and just get drunk. You can do it. You, know, you can pay money and do it. But in the ordinary business of being human and the way that the Bible speaks of it, it's a very powerful way of speaking. It's a form of communication. It's a way of being known and getting to know it so that uh, the Bible's constant word is that Adam knew his wife now that's not a euphemism the Bible is not coy about sex it will say things about sex even I won't say but but because there is a knowing there is something about the act of sexual intercourse where you actually get to know the person where there is an openness it's a way in which the body speaks it says I give myself unreservedly to you because in terms of measures and signs of affection you can't go any further really when having sexual intercourse with someone now the problem is when you have that sort of bodily communication with someone who you, you, know, who you really are just infatuated with whatever it kind of, you in the end you can't help but devalue the currency and when you meet the person who you are going to spend hopefully the rest of your life with you're really going to give yourself and commitment to you've got nothing more to say because you've said it with all sorts of people so, but what, the, what sex does is it both expresses love and it heightens love which is why just about every time when a, an ex-boyfriend or an ex-husband or certainly true of a husband an ex-boyfriend kills a woman I've been following these as far as I can follow them in the press for some years now almost always there had been full sexual relationships beforehand because there's something about the act of having sex that binds you to someone it glues you to them the two become one now you can separate them but it does damage, it rips and tears. Sex is a very big deal in our life, that's why in the end to be bashed for most people is not as traumatic as being raped, whether it be male or female. That's why sometimes in war, particularly when it's a, when it's a war of hatred, where people really hate the other one, whether it be men or women, so way back into ancient history there were times when whether they are men or women they are raped. Because if you want to hurt someone, Sexuality takes you to the heart and core of a person. It's not just like, hey, we're going to make you eat this pear which you don't like. It's not just like any other bodily appetite. It's deeper than that. Well, number four is the creative process. I know when I became a Christian without revealing whether or not I was a virgin or not because that's irrelevant. But I certainly did feel that in becoming Christian I had sided up with God against my sexuality. Now I was not going to be able to have a good time sexually, whether just hopefully in the future or continuance. And I think that's not uncommon, even for Christians, to at a gut level feel that they are hunted, kind of God and them versus their sexuality. That's not the way that the Bible speaks at all. The church may have at times, although it hasn't been as bad as the propaganda says. Let me, let's let have a look at the Song of Solomon. That's a fun book. Geographically, in the middle of the Bible, is this book called the Song of Songs or the Song of Solomon. It's a a set of love poems written by King Solomon to his bride. And uh, in some parts of the Jewish world, in some parts of orthodoxy, you're not allowed to read this book until you turn 30. Because it's far too arousing. Obviously when you get to 48, it doesn't matter. So we can read it, I can read it just to get a feel for the book. This is a book that some people think has got problems with sex. Chapter 1, verse 2. Let him kiss me with the kisses of his mouth, for your love is better than wine. Your anointing oils are fragrant. Your name is perfume poured out. Therefore the maidens love you. Draw me after you. Let us make haste. The king has brought me into his chambers. We will exalt and rejoice in you. We will extol your love more than wine. Rightly do they love you. And then what you have is a whole series of statements from the bride to the to the uh, the lover, as it's called. Uh, let's let's read one from chapter five, verse eleven. Now, this is this is kind of erotic, okay? But but what is considered sexual in one culture isn't another. So if, if you happen to have the form and shape of what is you know in our totalitarian sexual world, which is considered to be a good shape, you know, by our culture, good luck. Just be thankful that you're not living in some other culture where you'd be considered to be the wrong shape entirely. When I started to go with my wife, and, and there was this, just to show what an idiot I was, Chelly's art books. And I was not a very cultured man, I'm looking for art books. with all these nudes, Rubens and these other guys. And I said, why not I to paint a good-looking cheek? What is it good with all these cheeks?" She said, you idiot. That was, you know, that was, the, that was what was considered to be the beautiful form. So erotic, you know, the, the picture of beauty, what is a real sexual stimulant, it varies from culture to culture. Let me read you this. Poetry. Chapter <laughs> five, verse ten. She speaks. My beloved is all radiant and ruddy, distinguished among ten thousand. His head is the finest gold. His locks are wavy black as a raven. His eyes are like doves beside springs of water. You getting excited? <laughs> Bathed in milk. Pitley said. His cheeks are like beds of spice, yielding fragrance. His lips are lilies, distilling liquid. Perhaps if I read it more slowly, you get the feel of it his arms are rounded gold set with jewels his body is ivory work encrusted with sapphires his legs are alabaster columns set upon bases of gold his appearance is like Lebanon which is very beautiful choice as the seed is his speech is most sweet he is altogether desirable this is my beloved this is my friend our daughters of Jerusalem so you see they're not saying you're a very fine person and I'd like to talk about the meaning of life with you or well, I'd like to play chess with you. <laughs> they, are, they are delighting and rejoicing in the physicality. Right? She's expressing her joy in his looks. Now let's uh, read what he says about her. Chapter seven, verse one. How graceful are your feet and your sandals, O queenly maiden? Your rounded thighs are like jewels, the work of a master hand. Your navel is a rounded bowl. I don't think this chick, this lady's got a six-pack. <laughs> Your navel is a rounded bowl that never lacks mixed wine. Your belly is a heap of wheat encircled <laughs> with lilies. Your two breasts are like two fawns, twins of a gazelle. Your neck is like an ivory tower. Your eyes are the pools of Heshbon by the valley of Ba Rabin. Your nose is like the Tower of Lebanon <laughs> overlooking Damascus. Now, I don't think that means it was really big. I think that's a picture of straightness. And she hasn't played front row your nose is like the tower of Lebanon overlooking Damascus your head crowns you like caramel, your flowing locks are like purple a king is held captive in its tresses. how fair and present you are O loved one delectable maiden you are stately as a palm tree your breasts are like its clusters I said I will climb the palm tree and lay hold of its branches oh may your breasts be like clusters of the vine the scent of your breath like apples and your kisses like the best wine that goes down smoothly sliding over lips and teeth I am my beloved and his desire is on it See there's just a sheer enjoyment in the sexuality of the relationship uh, and when when a couple are married God wants them to delight and rejoice in their sexuality in fact there are various times in the Bible where you're commanded to have sex husbands and wives are reminded do it which may seem stupid to you until you have children and then sometimes a number of surveys, even in France, even in France, have shown that many people with children would rather have a good night's sleep than have sex, which is a bit sad. At the risk of being um, a little, I'm never quite sure to say this or not, in, you know, in August, company like this, but if I can just draw your attention to one part of, of anatomy, the, the clitoris, a part of the woman's sexual anatomy. As far as medical science is aware, at least the reading that I've done on this, and my doctor friends have told me there is no use in the clitoris. It has no use except for generating pleasure. It's just there for now. See the, the penis, the bloke, which is is a place of pleasure. It also is a place for getting rid of urine. It's also a place for delivering seed. Okay, it's a multi-purpose organ. Okay, but the clitoris, as far as we know, is useless except for pleasure. Now. If you believe in Jesus, if you trust Jesus, you believe in the God who made humans. He designed, he knits the human body together. And it says something about God that he would design an organ for apparently no other use than pleasure. So none of this rubbish that God has a problem with pleasure. We might, some might, God doesn't. God is absolutely pro now he doesn't want you like any other good thing in the world to turn into an idol to make it a God that you will worship and follow which is exactly what our culture does sir and we'll come back to this next week when we look at John 4 and sex eternal life and love in John 4 now, what our culture does is having got rid of the God who alone meets our deepest needs as a human being we turn to power and pleasure are the two things that Dr. Frankl talks about Uh, and pleasure normally in terms of sex. So sex becomes the great healer. And some of you have heard me say this before. Watch most of our movies, even our intelligent, thoughtful movies, and in the end, redemption is found in romance. It is the one thing that people, it's the ultimate. It's the thing that people will sacrifice almost anything for. People will crucify their families for it, their children for it, for romance. It becomes the ultimate it becomes the one thing that is worth living and dying for. It becomes an idol. And in the end, it doesn't function all that well because you ask it to do too much. Well, why does God, this creator, who makes sex and is pro-sex and is for sex, place restrictions around it, which I think at least, if one thing people know in Australia about God, is He has restrictions about your use of sex. The Old Testament, the first five books, as many of you will know, are called, in the Jewish world, are called the Torah, the books of Moses and which is sometimes translated as the law but it's not a very good translation because in the end, as I understand the word it has more the meaning of a a loving father's wise instruction to his children yes it is a law, it is to be obeyed but it's not just a law like the law of our land that you may resent but obey for fear of getting smashed by but it's the loving instruction of a wise parent and if you have a loving and wise parent why do they place restrictions on you? Now let's be honest, sometimes parents place restrictions on you for their own good. Right? Don't get out of bed till X time or whatever it is, that's just for their own good. But most of the restrictions parents place are well-intentioned in order to protect you. The biggest threats I gave to my children when they were little, and I don't know if they remember this, uh, was about if they ever crossed the road without holding my hand. I threatened them with near death when they were quite little about ever going onto the road without holding my hand. And the reason I was so... Um, expansive in my threats and frightened was because I knew most children only get one chance of being run over so it's better not to do it and up until they grow old enough and wise enough to know how to cross the road so they don't even think about it and God, knowing as he does how you work, knowing the potential good and damage that can be experienced in the area of sex does say certain areas of sexual behaviour are out he says some things in the law of Moses he says some things in the new covenant there's a great similarity one of the mistakes that's been made sometimes it's done again and again in the Sydney Morning Herald is to argue that the reason why Christians don't think two men should have sex together is because of the Old Testament that's not true we don't believe that because of Leviticus we believe because of the New Testament the law of Moses belongs to the Old Testament The law of the New Testament is also clear. Great similarities. But we don't think men shouldn't have sex with men or women with women. Or in that passage in Leviticus, men with animals, women with animals, people with close relatives. Because of Leviticus. We believe that because of the New Testament. But God very clearly outlines people who you're not to have sex with. Hello? 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 Oh, there it is go away <laughs> see there are laws about mobile phones <laughs> because wonderful inventions though they are they can also be destructive and destructive which is fine we need a distraction basically what the Bible says both in the positive and the negative is the place for genital sexual involvement is in marriage In a lifelong commitment, that's where it belongs. Messing about with a person's genitals, apart from your own, perhaps, at various points, is just inappropriate. You're just not. Just it belongs in marriage, where we express our love across the sexes fully. That's where it belongs. Doesn't belong anywhere else. If you're not in a lifelong commitment, keep out of that area. That's the Bible's basic point, and the basic reason is because it binds you together. So God because of that reason says, don't do it here, don't do it there, don't do it there. Because in the end, the way human law almost always works is, it's not good enough just to express the positive, you also need to put some limits. All right, so that's what God does. So the reason why God places restrictions on your sexual expression is only because of his desire that you would have as good a sexual life as possible. He is not like in The Devil's Advocate, if you've seen that movie. The Devil's Advocate is the only movie I've ever spoken during the middle of. I couldn't, halt, I couldn't help myself. That's not true. You can always help yourself. But there's this speech the devil gives, if you've seen it. It's not a bad movie to see. Uh, it's got some dodgy parts in it. But the devil's then, he's talking at one stage, and he talks about God making it with all these desires and passions, and then says, no, don't enjoy it. As if God, this cruel killjoy. And I'm sitting watching these, this nonsense go on, talking about the God who I know and the God who loves me and has died for me, just slandering Him on the screen, and these idiots in front of me would. Go, yeah, yeah. So in the end, I waited for an appropriate moment and said, "Crap!" I <laughs> <laughs> um, apologised the guy I'd gone with, who was quite a sensitive filmmaker. I does oh, no, I just couldn't. It was, just, it was like going to the movie and hearing your mother being slandered, you know, and um, had to speak up he said no that was fine he said did you hear what the bloke said I said no I said bloody Christians they're everywhere (laughs) (laughs) but in Psalm 81 there's this wonderful passionate discussion where God is saying if only my people would obey my teaching I would fill them with good things the reason why God says go this way not that way is not because he's trying to make some little test life is a little test God says little hurdles to see if you're serious. that's rubbish God gives his commands because he knows you and he loves you and he wants you to have as good a sexual life as it is humanly possible to have and because of that he says don't go there don't go there even if everyone says they are and they're not even if everyone's going on about it God's love is the reason why he places restrictions around it so in the end question six it is a question of trust it is in the end a question of who will you trust in this area and recognise that you have been profoundly educated by people who are telling you the exact opposite of what your maker has said let me read you a verse that I think most of you will know and if you, if you haven't learned, this is a good verse to learn off by heart write it on your wall Proverbs 3 verse 5 trust in the Lord with all your heart do not rely on your own insight See, if you are going to trust in God you've got to stop trusting in yourself Trust the Lord with all your heart. Do not rely on your own insight. In all your ways acknowledge him and he will make straight your paths. Do not be wise in your own eyes. Fear the Lord turn away from evil. It will be healing for your flesh and refreshment for your body. It's a beautiful statement. That covers the whole of life. Don't rely on your own wisdom which will just be a reflection of your culture. But instead, lean on the wisdom of God who has made you and loves you. There have been some fascinating studies that have come out in the last 10 years indicating that that these kind of sexually repressed, Bible-believing type people actually have a much happier go of it in, in sex and love and marriage. There was an amazing one that came out in a magazine called Redbook, which is an American equivalent sort of Cleo or Cosmopolitan, uh, which are just those magazines are a complete waste of trees. Uh, but Redbook, they, they had a survey some years back where they, they were sort of a tear-off thing and people could fill in this this survey on their sexual lives and pleasure and stuff, and they sent it in. And in the end, Red Book were appalled at a number of things. They were appalled at how many people filled it in. They ended up having tens of thousands of people filling it in. So they had to employ people to go through and process the information. They had some great articles after because they were appalled who were the sexually most satisfied and most orgasmic women in America? Those who put themselves down as very and deeply religious. And it was a hoot as they tried to work it out because... The propaganda is, if you're really into religion and the Bible and stuff like that, you will have a repressed, unenjoyable sex life. But if you're not into religion and you're just a free-thinking atheist, you'll have a wonderful, free, liberated, maximally sexual life. And they found the research was quite clear. It was anonymous. It was quite clearly opposite. And they had all sorts of attempts to explain it away. Not unlike cosmopolitan, which for years had been saying to people in Australia, don't get married before you live with each other they used to call got over the stupid phrase now a trial marriage how on earth you have a trial permanent relationship is beyond me but that's what they were suggesting have a trial permanent relationship I, then the research has come out and this research is really clear in Australia uh, that couples who live together before they get married have a much higher divorce rate than couples that don't I was having my hair cut for a while I used to have my hair cut in a ladies hairdressing salon and I was reading this article and I said, Can I have this magazine? No, I said, Can I have those pages? No, you can have the whole magazine. And it was what it was funny watching this poor magazine desperately trying to make sense of the fact that their advice, which they gave in good faith, right? Live with each other, see if the you know, see if the machinery works together, see if you can do it, and then have a much higher divorce rate. Whereas the advice was being given and over eighty percent of Australians believe now, in, in sort of research that the Telegraph had some years ago, the Daily Telegraph the couple should live together before they get married so the wisdom is do it Gods says of course you're not going to do that right? um, in the end it's a question of who you're going to trust you're going to believe our culture which is seriously sadly lost or are you going to trust God in the end God made it, God designed it God invented it, he's pro it his advice is that of a loving wise sexual counsellor and you'd be crazy not to follow him now any questions? Let's see if we've got time for questions. 152, you've got to be out of here in a few minutes. Boss, we've got any time for questions or not? Probably not. Well, I only said it to pretend I was open-minded. <laughs> <laughs> no I Now, uh, you may like to ask, write a question and put it on a bit of paper, and I'll try and uh, address some next week. And I'll be certainly hanging around if you want to challenge me on anything, ask a question on behalf of a friend, or something like that. Be happy to take it. <laughs> oh yes and I would love to pray let's pray before we go Father we acknowledge that it is you that invented us and not us who invented you we thank you that you chose to make us sexual creatures with all the complexity and confusion that sometimes brings to our lives in this sad and broken world now Father please write into our minds and hearts a really deep uh, trust in you that you are a good God you have shown your love in Jesus beyond any question that we may gladly follow you even when all our upbringing would push us in a different direction help us Lord, not only to act in obedience to you that we may not damage ourselves but so that we would not damage anybody else now, Father we pray that you would help us in this area of life to walk wisely with you and to walk joyfully with you in Jesus name